Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Hello, guests. This is your host, Matt Drinkon, here for another episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. And it is my genuine, sincere pleasure and honor to have on the show today someone who definitely has something in common with me, Cheryl Pluff. Cheryl, on her last name, is spelled differently. So I'm sure that just like me, everyone in the history of the world has said my last name wrong the first time I meet it. I bet you that people probably say your name incorrectly. So officially, it is Cheryl Pluff. Cheryl. Welcome to the show today. Hey, Matt. So great to be with you. Yes, it's a French-Canadian name, so I don't expect most people to say it with a French-Canadian accent, but I'm not offended if people mispronounce my last name. What is the most unusual pronouncing that you've heard from people when they've tried to pronounce it and someone got it wrong? I think it's just ploof, but really accentuating the plu, like ploof, which is fine. No worries at all. Okay. Oh, cool. How about you? Pronounce your last name for me so that I can really get it and learn it. It's drink on, just like drink O-N is the way I would say it. Drink on. The worst someone ever said, or I'd say the most unusual someone ever said, is that when I went to uh, eighth grade, I went to a place called Rome Catholic High School in upstate Rome, New York. And my first day in the new school, the principal said, Matt Dingelhofer. <laughs> Yeah, I know. How the heck do you get that from drink on? I have and no idea how you get that. I have no idea how you get that. And I looked at the sheet later and it said drink on. So how do you get that? And for a new boy, like a new to a school and just moved to that state from Texas and I'm brand new here and someone says that and everyone's looking around the auditorium like, who is that? I didn't move because I didn't think it was me. I genuinely did not think it was me. So at the very end, when the convocation is over with, I, I walk up to the person reading the names. And I say, you never called my name. And we went down the list and there it is. But wasn't funny to eighth grade boy, Matthew, at the time. I was super sensitive about it. But yeah. For sure. For sure. It's so great to be here with you. It's a real pleasure to connect around names, to connect around serving people. And I'd love to dive right in here. Cheryl, for our listeners who are not familiar with your work yet, could you just give us a summary, maybe three bullet points on who is Cheryl Pluff? I am a former TV broadcaster, then turned video strategist, then turned joint venture partner, and I support coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs today in helping them scale their business. We help them to unleash their full potential and really become what we call icons in their niche. And we do that through podcasting and through high ticket offers and some other things. But Icon Maker is really what I'm focused on right now as part of a joint venture with two other business partners. And we're really on a roll in helping entrepreneurs to build true, sustainable seven-figure businesses. 
Woo! Building sustainable seven-figure businesses, that is a, a very sexy subject. And I'm sure that our audience is thrilled to listen to you speak about this today. And I would love to uh, dive into that in a little while before we go into your vision for icon makers and how you're helping entrepreneurs. I'd love to give some backstory about just some of the stuff that you may have endured or overcome in your life so far. So Cheryl, if you do us the honor and take us back at, at any point in time, it could be yesterday, it could be childhood, just some point in the past, what's something that was incredibly difficult for you in the past that we can start with today? Well, I think for me, it really started when I was 15, when I was, I came from a broken family and like my mom and dad split up when I was young and it ended up as a happy story because they were apart for 10 years and got back together. But at that time they were apart. There were some issues there with regard to my mom had four kids raising them by herself on social assistance. And there were some challenges there for sure. I came from that environment. That's the, those are the circumstances that I was dealt as a child and specifically as a teenager. I knew though in my heart, that wasn't who I was. And I just knew it instinctively inside of me. I don't know where that came from, but I just knew that this is not who I am and I ought not to be defined by these circumstances. So what happened was around the age of 15 through 17 through 19 in that range, I started to do things that were very out of character for me, facing a lot of fears that were out of character for me. For example, started to do local modeling in pad. It was in pageantry. I started hosting and winning. <laughs> so I was hosting a TV show by the time I was 18 years old. Now, what's interesting about that is that I grew up and what I would really define as painfully shy as a child. When I was, I can think of second grade, third grade, when the teacher would call on me in class, I would cry. I hated having eyes on me. It felt like a burning sensation. Everybody's looking at me. I'm going to have to answer this question. Or I would clam up and I wouldn't respond. And in high school, I actually flipped the switch on that and actually became the opposite of that. I became the class clown. Huh. It was just interesting how I had all these different dynamics that played out in my childhood and in my teenage years. But the overarching thing, Matt, for me was really around this idea that I didn't believe that's who I was. I ought not to be defined by these circumstances. So I started doing things that were scary to become someone different, to become a pageant winner. I wanted to be the girl on the stage in the sparkly dress with the crown and the sash. Why can't I do that? Even though I'm from the wrong side of the tracks, why can't I do that? And we did. My mom was a big force in helping me to practice and get out there on those stages. And she was the one who hand sewed the sequins on my Salvation Army $3 dress that I would use to get up on stage. These were some of the things that really, I think, shaped who I am. And then later in my 20s is when I started pursuing my desire to want to be on national television or to carve myself out a career, if you will, a full-time career in television. I did want to be on national television, had no idea how I would get there. And I did accomplish it before I was 30. Awesome. Wow. Another home run grand slam for someone who started off super shy, devastatingly, just shy, did not want to be on the stage and in front of people, shifted to class clown type status, and then started to find, what if? Why not me? And you figured out a way to then get to hosting your own show and winning pageants. And just such a cool 
backstory, origin story here of how you started off and overcame. So thank you for taking us down that path. Thank you for asking. It's not something that I talk a lot about because in many cases, it feels like there's some pain that I want to push away and not bring back to the surface. So I just don't talk about it all that much. I'm very much a look forward type of person, not so much a look back type of person. So when given an opportunity to think back and look back on it, Matt, it's a welcome thing for me to do because I don't naturally do that. I like to keep looking back for just a couple more minutes. I'm super curious here. You hosted your first TV show at 18. What was the TV show at 18? Yeah, it was a news magazine program that our local cable station produced called On the Waterfront. I was a volunteer at this station in the background. I was the person in the studio pulling cable. And one day there was a host who maybe didn't show up. I don't remember the circumstances. And they tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you like to try hosting this show? We need a host. And I said, okay, sure, I'll try that. I think secretly I wanted to do it, but had no idea what that meant. So next thing, there I am, and I'm traveling around town with this TV crew, and we're producing segments for the show. I have to memorize my stand-ups, and I have to interview people, and I've got to eat all these different things. So I ended up doing that for several years, and that's really what sparked my love for television and presenting. And then it set me on a path of wanting to do that professionally. Awesome. Wow. Wow. When the opportunity came up, you stepped into it and you said, yeah, I'd like to try that. What was that first time like behind the microphone and behind the camera? I think any of time, the first time I did a modeling gig, if I did a fashion show or the first time I stepped out on stage in that pageant world or first time that I did a segment for the TV show, it's terrifying. (laughs) How else do you put it? It's absolutely terrifying. But I am the kind of person who is a quick study and I like to learn new things. I do love to learn. I'm a lifelong learner. So I look at those situations and those specific circumstances. And I just go, okay, let's just do the best we can. Let's just one foot in front of the other, do what you can learn from it and and start incrementally making it better as you go along. And that's really what I ended up doing. But I do remember being scared. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember the first time I was on a TV interview and I was up in Boston and there was a bunch of people with microphones around. And it was at the, one of those giant podiums that had all the mics. That alone was intimidating see all that. And then to get up there behind the camera, it's brighter and hotter than you would imagine. Your whole face feels like it's on fire and your heart is just like coming out of your chest and you're trying to control your breathing. You're like, can everybody see my heart right now going like this? (laughs) You just feel this fire. It's hard to explain it. It's nerves. I think it's totally natural. When I was working in the video marketing space, specifically working with journalism students. I actually taught college for some time where I was teaching journalism students how to be on camera before they were set off to start their careers. And not everybody who was in that class wanted to be an on-air presenter. They had to do it for their credit to get their diploma, to get their degree and move on. And they were surprised to learn that, oh, the first time I did it, I didn't love it. And then the second time I did it, I was like, okay, I'm coming around to this idea. You do it five times and you go, this is not so bad. I can handle this. And that was Mm -hmm. often a refrain that I would hear from people who previously said, there's no way I'm stepping in front of a camera to, okay, this is not so bad. This is Mm -hmm. not so bad. I think I can do it. Did the nerves ever go away or are they omnipresent and just lesser in the front of your mind as you go on in your career? For me, the nerves went away. 
the nerves went away pretty quickly. And the only time I was really nervous again in television was when I landed my national TV job. The first time I was going to be on national, I really developed an ulcer, or at least what I thought was an ulcer. Like I was so nervous leading up to that event because I knew when my first shift was going to be in a week in advance. So I had too much time to think about it. And then the night came and it was 11 o'clock, it was a Saturday, 11 p.m. And I went on and I did it and I was so nervous because the pressure of, wow, could be potentially thousands of people watching this right now. In my little cable show, it was like maybe hundreds. This is thousands, probably tens of thousands, if not more. So it was a bit nerve wracking, but just like anything, one in front of the other. And about, I would say three weekends in, I was much more comfortable. And then I became myself and comfortable. And then I was able to really shine and show my personality, which is what TV presenters are being hired to do, present the information, but also be a personality on camera as well. Absolutely. I'm curious. I don't know if anybody has this, but is there a way to get like a copy of your very first time on the air and put that in the show notes so our our audience can see? (laughs) That tape, it's on a VHS tape. So this is the year 2000. (laughs) Yes. My husband did record it and I refused to watch it. We've been married for 25 years. He's been occasionally asking me, we should watch that tape. We should find that tape somewhere in the basement. We should watch that tape. I'm like, no, I really don't want to revisit it because like I said, I'm not a look back person. I don't want to revisit the fear and the anxiety that I felt in that moment. So I'm like, no, we're just going to ignore that and leave it in the box. But it is on a VHS tape. It does exist somewhere in this house. I just refuse to bring it out. (laughs) Understood, understood. We'll do one more look back and then we'll look forward to the vision and icon makers. What else on your journey has been something that has been difficult, challenging that you've had to endure and overcome, Cheryl? I think it was, there's so many things, but the thing that comes to my mind is when I was working to get that career built up for television, like I wanted to be on television and I wanted to have a career in that, but I didn't go to school for journalism. I went to college. I was going for my BA and I quickly learned that it wasn't in my heart. I just didn't want to sit in philosophy class. It wasn't in me. So I ended up leaving college. So really, frankly, dropped out of college because that school did not offer anything in the multimedia arts, didn't offer journalism. It didn't offer television. So I ended up working. And what I did was I waited on tables. I worked in hospitality. I worked at the Banff Springs Hotel in Banff, Alberta for several years, managing and as a dining room captain. And I was really working while I was also trying to build up this career and work my way up. So that whole part was really difficult. There was actually one point at which I was working three jobs. So I would get up in the morning and I would go to the radio station and I would produce the business report for the radio station. And then I would leave there and I would go to the cable station in the afternoon and I would do television for a show that I was hosting and sometimes reporting for. And then in the evening, I would go to the restaurant and I would serve cheese tortellini to a whole bunch of people from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. to make ends meet. And then I did that over and over again, three jobs, while I was sending out demo tapes to produce to producers and news directors across Canada and the United States to find myself a position. 
and auditioning and things of that nature. Yeah, there were some difficult moments. And I was very happy when I got the word that I got the job. (laughs) Because then that meant I could stop this craziness of doing three jobs while I tried to carve that out. I wonder how many uh, demo tapes and how many times you had to interview in order to finally land that dream job and leave the three job lifestyle behind. It's hard to tell. I would maybe guess probably at least 25, at least 30, a lot. My husband also was in television for his entire career. When he did, he was in that phase and he put out a hundred tapes back in the day. He put out a hundred different demo tapes and told himself that he would take the first job that came, like the first job offer. And that first job offer came here in the city that we now live in, that we now have since moved to. Wow. Did you two actually ever work together on air and do things together at the same station? Not at the same station, but years ago, we were in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and he worked for one station. I worked for the Weather Network. We were in Gulf Shores, Alabama, looking out at the Gulf of Mexico, and there was a tropical storm out in the Gulf, and it was coming toward us. So we both teamed up together and started recording each other on our phones and creating and recording stand-ups of each other to send to our prospective stations back at home to do reports from live on the ground in the path of, I think it was Tropical Storm Karen at that time. Wow, such a cool story. You never know where stories are going to go sometimes. But that's really the closest we've ever come. That's the closest we've ever come to working together. But we've both been able to help each other in various capacities along our paths in television. He did sports, I did weather. He was a really a key contributor to helping me in my early going of getting me really prepared properly in order to land that job, that initial job way back in the year 2000. So from what I've heard so far, you've exemplified in a very graceful, and I know that there was probably a lot of hard work and just rough grinding through all of that. And you just did it so gracefully the way you portrayed it. So I want to honor you for that. And I'd like to move forward to icon makers and where you are right now in your life. What is your why or what are you passionate about right now, Cheryl? Right now, I'm passionate about experts, people who are great at what they do, but haven't been able to find the traction that they need in order to truly build a sustainable business coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs typically are coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs because they want to impact other people. So there is a desire to want to help other people. And they have been doing things online that have kept them busy, but not making any money. We see a lot of people in the space who are creating these really complex, complicated funnels, for example, or they're chasing the next shiny object, the next Facebook ad that they've been targeted by, the next thing that they have to have that's the silver bullet to helping them achieve their dreams in entrepreneurship. And it's usually that's not going to work because their fundamentals are not aligned. They're not solid. And we see that because once we get into working with people, we find out that even the basic questions that we're asking cannot be answered because they haven't given thought to who do you want to serve and Mm -hmm. what are you best at? I'm best at a lot of things. No, but what's the one thing that you want to focus on? There's no focus. It's just a bunch of things all over the place. And so what we help them to do is to figure out, okay, if we're going to make a sustainable seven-figure business, we have to narrow down. 
you're going to have to make decisions. It's very difficult for people who are entrepreneurs who are, again, giving helpers. It's hard for them to narrow down and focus because they want to do all kinds of things. No, you have to narrow down and focus. You need one offer to get you to seven figures, not eight, not all these crazy ascension model things and trying to bring people from a $7 thing to a $97 thing to a course and then another thing and another thing. One program, one program gets you to seven figures. And so that's in short what we're passionate about right now is just helping people get off that hamster wheel and actually build a real thing. I love what you're saying. I feel like you're talking to me as a coach who's got several offers and who's running a strong business. And at the same time, it feels like there could be enhancement or improvement. So I wonder, are you looking to work with some of those professional entrepreneurs who are at the start, who are just trying to get their idea together and get started? Are you looking for someone who's already scaled to a million and you're looking to get them to multiple millions? Who might that ideal avatar be for you, Cheryl? Yeah, the ideal person, I think, for what we do, and and the program is called Seven Figure Podcaster Program. The idea is predominantly going to be somebody that can be new in business, but they can't be new to what it is that they're great at. They have to be great at something. They have to have a skill or rich experience or wisdom and knowledge around a specific thing. If they're great at what they do and they know they can help other people to accomplish or to have a result and have an outcome based on their work, then that's really the most important thing. I would say overwhelmingly though, Matt, most people that come to us are not at six figures yet, or they're just sitting around that six figures and they're looking to grow to seven. I would say overwhelmingly, that's who it is. Now we do have some outliers. We have some people who are well into the multiple six figures And they're looking for that edge to be able to say, okay, I'm at this place, but I have no life. It's great that I'm at multiple six figures, but I don't have a life right now because we believe in having both. And they want that extra edge to be able to say, how do I get to seven figures in a really good way, in an elegant way that I'm not working 80 hours a week? So I think we run both of those types of scenarios with people. But most people, most coaches statistically are under six figures in revenue. And we know that. So we help them to sort all of that out. I used that uh, nine years ago. I got in the coaching business. It was fascinating because I started, I was already you know, earning a strong six-figure income. And I stopped that because I couldn't see myself doing it for the next 40 years. So stopped and then went into coaching and went straight to $0. Yeah. Nothing and no guarantees, no nothing right away, no insurance, no nothing. And that first four years was just very challenging. So what is your advice or what is your words of wisdom to someone let's just say the first few years of their coaching business, their service business, and they've not scaled it yet. And they probably need your help or they could benefit from your help, but they just don't know how or they don't have the courage to reach out to you. How might you advise them to make the first step or to to reach out, Cheryl? I think that the first thing that I would say is you need to really be focused on cash flow, like focus on income generating activities. Don't focus on the shiny objects and the tactic du jour, so to speak. You want to be focused on what are income generating activities that I can do in order to, to the best of my ability, try to stabilize my cash flow. Because if you can stabilize your cash flow, now you have the ability to take some of that money and be able to reinvest it in coaches and other people who've been down the path and have the thing and have built the thing that you want to build, and you can cut a check for speed, right? To be able to 
work with that other person instead of you grinding for seven years trying to figure it out on your own. I think we're both coaches. So we both probably agree that coaching is a great thing so long as you're with the right coach and that you're hiring people and working with people who have the thing you want. You need to hire the people that have done the thing that you want to have and have the ability to take you there because they have a plan. So I think that it's really about the cash flow piece and making sure that you're not just staying busy. Dancing on TikTok is fine if there is a path toward that actually being an income generating activity. Uh, necessarily a big fan of the TikTok for most of the people that we're working with, but as long as there's a path to stabilizing the revenue and the cash flow, then that's what I would focus on. I'm so glad to hear you share these things. This is real good practical advice for anyone out there who is starting a business or who is in a few years into their business and you haven't figured this out yet. That cash flow part is so important to get something. And if your activity time is invested into TikTok or LinkedIn, I'm going to create a campaign on LinkedIn. I'm going to write an article once every quarter. I'm going to write four articles this year. That's my business development. People are going to see that. They're going to read it. They're going to want to hire me. How many times have I heard that from new coaches and consultants? That's just not going to work for the overwhelming majority of people is a passive marketing approach. So your advice is focus on your cash flow and the income producing activities. I wonder what, what are some of the income producing activities that we might focus on? Because I think that some coaches get in thinking that I'm going to be a coach. That's what this business is. It's all about coaching. And in reality, Coaches are also professional salespeople. They've got to generate the business. So what's the come to Jesus moment where you lift the blinds from their eyes? How does that first couple conversations go? For us, it's really about income generating activities that are going to lead to conversations with other business owners. So let me use the example of what we talk a lot about in, in seven-figure podcasting world is that the three Ps of podcast monetization. It's patrons, partners, and platforms. So what we say is and focus on is we're going to help you focus on how do you get prospects? So patrons, meaning who are people that can become prospects of what it is that you do? Who are people you can partner with who can either become referral partners, collaborate in some way, joint venture in some way, any number of different kinds of partnerships that are available to people working together with a common goal, a win scenario, and then platforms being what are platforms that you can get on to bolster your authority, be seen as an expert, share your ideas, connect with other people, and all the benefits that come from speaking? That's the lens through which I see it. If your income generating activities are leading to one of those three Ps, you're good to go. If your income generating activities have nothing to do with getting out on platforms and speaking or building some type of partnership or having a list of prospects, it's probably not going to go anywhere. Probably not an income generating activity. It's probably something you might probably make not. you feel good. No. And it's probably a safe bet. Or it's probably a, it's like hitting a softball. It's easier to do than hitting a fastball with baseball. All right. But it may not actually generate what you want, which is the cash flow, which is the big business. Yeah. And I think the reason that a lot of people follow, again, let's using TikTok as the example. It's like I'm dancing on TikTok. I'm doing five of those. I'm doing my five inspirational quotes every day on Facebook. There's nothing wrong with content marketing so long as it's been strategized so that it's leading somewhere. And it's not just being put out there, falling down your page, never to be seen again. And it's taking more time to produce that than it's worth. Like those are the things that you have to analyze. So anything to do, Matt, with speaking, like what I'm doing here, I'm on mm -hmm. your show and thank you for having me. 
I'm here to speak about the topics that we feel can help other people. Speaking is a great thing you should be doing, right? Getting on more calls. Most people, I think most entrepreneurs are not having nearly as many conversations with other people privately as they should be. What do you mean by that? Getting on calls, ringing people up and saying, hey, look, let's connect. What are you working on? What are some projects you have coming up in 2024? Is there a way that we can collaborate together? What do you got going on? What do you need? Who do you need to meet? Are there any introductions that you need to have or meet? Or who are some people that you need to meet that I might know? Being of service to other people, like getting on and talking about that, talking about those conversations is what leads to business development in some cases. And so I think that entrepreneurs are not doing nearly enough of that. They're nose deep in... YouTube videos on how to build the greatest funnel that's going to solve all their problems, but they're not actually talking to people. Mm, Man, so they're really busy and yet not producing much. And it's that that feeling of I'm working all the time, but I have to show for it. I have some knowledge because I watched the videos, but I didn't actually talk to anybody. I feel that. I feel it's a cop-out for a lot of entrepreneurs is that I'll go and study all this, get all this information, and it's got to be perfect before I take any action. And then when it comes time to take action, their back's against the wall because it's taken so long. And it's scary to try to reach out to people and drive business and build a business. It doesn't have to be scary if you approach it as what can I do that's giving to that other person rather than taking. So if I want to, let's say I go in my LinkedIn and I look at a connection, I go, oh, John, I haven't chatted with John. Gosh, it's been a year and a half since I've had a chat with John, right? Send him a message and say, hey, John, it'd be great to connect again and rekindle where we left off. What are projects that you're working on? Maybe there's some introductions I can make for you. I'm not asking for anything. I'm just saying, how can I be of service to you? That's a great way to do it. I love that, that somebody has got to go first. Somebody's got to extend the olive branch first and to do that. And I like that you're playing an offense where it's offense to serve and help others. Some of the people I coach play an offense like that. These are some of the most successful people I know. They go at it from a perspective of serving others. And genuinely, they're not asking for anything. They're asking to simply help them. Uh, And so much comes back to, to people like that. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing that. You're coaching people to do that. And that's In my opinion, that's what eternal optimism is all about. It's all about playing an offense to help others in the world. And even when stuff is hard, we still figure out a way to help. We still figure out a way to learn from it. Because you've mentioned you're a lifelong learner. You've mentioned you play an offense to help others and help others connect. No, I'm not asking for anything. I just want to help you. I don't know if if you like being labeled eternal optimist, saying that you exhibit the qualities that I would call an eternal optimist. Label me an eternal optimist. I love it. Yeah, I'm curious. You're working and helping leaders, entrepreneurs, coaches, consultants, you're helping them build businesses. So what's the stuff for you in your business now that's the challenging part for you, Cheryl? I feel like right now we're working mostly on one of the things that we really focus on is helping people get results. And that's always ultimately what it's about. Like we're only as good as the results we can get for our clients. One of the things that I'm feeling or being challenged with is I feel like we need to do more in the place of mindset for our clients to set them up for success in the early going. This is something that I didn't really anticipate would need to be done quite to the degree that I now see that we do. I had someone the other day say to me, yeah, I'm not sure if I really want to get clients though in my business. I don't know if I want to do the whole client thing. What? And I said, oh, okay, this is a business. And so business requires clients or customers. It's, they go hand in hand. And it was shocking to me because I thought, 
oh, wow, that's where we need to start from the basics. I think that was something that kind of came up recently, just like the mindset of an entrepreneur. It's not an employee mindset. It's completely Mm -hmm. different. You have to think differently as an entrepreneur. You have to be much more resourceful. You have to be driven. You have to be persistent. You have to take care of yourself. That's something I struggle with. I, I don't think I take enough care of myself personally. It's a different mindset. When you're an employee, you're told what time to be there and when to punch in and when to clock out and you get your pay and things are done for you. And you have different departments in your company. Oh, just call the marketing department. When you're an entrepreneur, you are the marketing department, especially in the early stages. So it's a different way of thinking. And I think that's one of the challenges that we're faced with right now, Matt. And we have some solutions. We've actually been building some solutions here in the last couple of weeks around this in helping people shore up their mindset before they really embark on the bulk and the meat, if you will, of our program itself. So I I struggle with this or have challenged with clients in the same vein that when we start, we've got to check on the mindset, see where it is, and help to align that through the lens of where they want to go. And I see sometimes that when they might say things like, I don't want to have clients, or I don't want to go get clients, or I don't want to sell, or if I'm selling, that means I'm pressuring, or I don't want to be labeled a salesperson, any type of mindset like that. And what you shared was help them see that they're adding value. They're really genuinely helping other people with what they do. So I wonder how you coach them to get to that place because that's a place that I start every client with and it's always something that's a different mindset for everyone. How do you walk them through and get them to that place where they can actually see that they're adding value rather than, man, I'm just a salesperson. They're going to see me wrong. They're going to see me bad. Yeah. I think one of the things that I impart is, and this is just my belief, that if you're great at something, if you're really good at what you do and it can help other people, it's an obligation. It's a moral obligation for you to bring that to other people to help them. You ought to be looking at it as it's my obligation. It's my duty to be able to take the gifts that I've been given or the experience or the wisdom that I've gained and accumulated over time. Mm -hmm. It's my role, my responsibility to take that to other people. And I think if you think of it that way, it starts to take the pressure off of you of feeling like I have to be a salesperson and I got to grind and I got to be that guy or that girl who's annoying and promotional, all of those things. When you come at it from a service perspective, like I'm serving other people with what I do and it's my obligation to do it because I'm really good at it and it can help them and I know I'm good at it. It just helps you to reframe how you're approaching that. Thank you. That is, take heed, dear listeners, this was a knowledge bomb that just got dropped here. So I hope it didn't slip through the antenna. If you did, then go back and listen to the last two minutes. It's a moral obligation to take the things, our gifts, the things we're great at, and to serve others and to share those things. If we're really good at something, then share it. Don't just hoard it. Share it. It's your responsibility. I could not agree more. Than, I totally 100% am aligned with that. So I love that you shared that. And Matt, you know what? I'll say one other thing about that is that's not necessarily just applicable to you in your program or the thing that you're selling. Let that permeate you as a coach when you're out there just on a talk or speaking to a group of people privately in at an event or you're sitting at a banquet table just chit-chatting and you're providing value to the person who's sitting next to you at dinner. Like it doesn't have to be always just through the lens of the thing I'm selling. 
just let that be who you are in the world as an entrepreneur. Always be thinking about how can I serve? How can I help? What can I offer? What can I give? I love the checklist of questions. What can I offer? What can I give to the world? And it's not an on-off switch. We're always on. We're always on trying to serve others. And it's not a burden to do this. It's not a, a stress point to do this. It's calling, if you will. It's a vision and a mission if it's really deep down ingrained in you. And I love the word, let it permeate throughout you as a coach. So thank you for that. That's a note I'm taking. So from here, Cheryl, where do we find you online, social media? How can we learn more about you and Icon Makers and reach out to you for some coaching and some advice? At Icon Maker, there are three of us in the business, Tom Matson, Danella Burnett, and myself. And Icon Maker is the joint venture company that we've created. And within that, we have a variety of, we have a division, podcast magazine division that's headed up by T.R. Garland. He's our editor-in-chief. We also have some wonderful free gifts that we can give. For example, one of our awesome gifts is the Ultimate Directory of Podcasters, which is a listing of podcasters, world-class podcasters who are seeking guests for their shows. We have them in a directory with over 780 different listings, including their contact information, so that people can go out and find shows to be on. And they're categorized in categories and subcategories, etc. There are a variety of things that we offer. All three of us are on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook, we're on the socials. But IconMakerLive.com is a great URL or stopping ground to be able to go and check in with us and see where we're at. And we have events that we do. We have free gifts, lots of different resources that are available. One thing I like to say though, too, Matt, is in this crazy entrepreneurial world with all the URLs and all the websites, at the end of the day, if you send me an email, (laughs) if you send me an email, Cheryl at iconmakerlive.com, I'll respond or send it to my assistant and she'll respond and get you what it is that you need at the end of the day. But iconmakerlive.com is a great place to go. Thank you. iconmakerlive.com is the place to go. Cheryl, that's S-H-E-R-Y-L, Cheryl at iconmakerlive.com. That's the email address to reach out to Cheryl directly. And I believe you have workshops coming up at some point. When might be your next workshop and how might we get a sneak peek or get an opportunity to attend that? Yeah. If you go to iconmakerlive.com, you'll see whether or not we have an upcoming workshop or if we're doing our events. So we do live events as well, periodically. Our next big Icon Maker Live event is at the end of March 2024. It's a virtual event, but the team of us traveled to Charleston, South Carolina to conduct that event from the Sage Studios. That's one thing that's coming up, but we do the workshops periodically as well. We also can send people replays in certain situations and cases. So you certainly want to just reach out and ask us, hey, when is your next workshop? But iconmakerlive.com is the best place to find out. I am checking this out right now. This is incredibly detailed. I love this website, iconmakerlive.com. I'm looking at the workshop right now and it talks about the general admission, the VIP admission to the actual event and it's got, I mean, you're really good at this. It's got a very detailed explanation of what comes with both. So if you want information and you want the bridge to get there, this is a safe place to go to this website and see it. Because it's very descriptive. This is really easy to understand. This is good. Thank uh, you. Let's see. There's a bunch of FAQs. Everyone's on here. This, Yeah, check out iconmakealive.com, listeners. This is a cool place to be. 
And there are testimonials here from a number of people that share their experience. It's legit and ready to roll. And Cheryl, this has been awesome to learn with you today. So thank you. We've advanced to the lightning round to wrap things up today. So ding, ding, here we go. So Cheryl, as someone who is a lifelong learner, if you're a reader, then I would ask you, what might be a book between one and three books that have had an impact on you in your life so far that you recommend? Oh, gosh. Okay. The One Thing by Jay Papasan and uh, Gary Keller. I love that book. Looking around, my bookshelf is over there. Another one that I like, and this is somebody that I've been following for a long time, but Marie Forleo's book, Unfigureoutable, Everything is Figureoutable. It was an interesting, quick read, but interesting read. Everything is Figureoutable. And I just loved her just the way that she helped us to see, yeah, you know what? Everything is outable. We can figure it out. And that's something that my grandfather instilled in my dad. I remember from years ago, my dad would always say, and he didn't say it in that term, but that was something that was always instilled in me. My dad would say, your grandfather always said that if, if anybody else can do something, let's say it's a plumbing problem. And my dad was an electrician, for example. And he'd say, well, if there's a plumbing problem, if somebody else can do it, then you can do it too right? It can be figured out. You can do it. And so I love that concept. Another one that I really liked was, I liked Alex Hermosi's book, The $100 Million Offers, the Mm -hmm. big purple book. I don't know if you've Mm -hmm. seen the cover. That one I really enjoyed as well. Fantastic. And just to to add some more context, you said the one thing by Jay Papasan and Gary Keller. Jay Papasan runs in a couple circles that I'm friends with some of these people. And he has a method that's eerily similar to what you had actually described earlier. And as an entrepreneur, one of his things he does frequently, and I say frequently, I want to say once a week, is that he makes it a mission to have a lunch every week with someone different. So that's just more fuel to what you mentioned earlier, is to get out there and talk to people. I mean, he's out there talking to people. Talk to people. Nothing nothing bad comes from talking to people. Rarely does something bad come from talking to people. That's right. So just get out there. I love it. Next question would be, if you're a music person, then what might be your song or your genre or your artist that really fills your bucket and inspires you, Cheryl? Matt, you don't know this about me yet, but I'm the biggest Prince fan you've ever encountered. (laughs) Nice. That's an easy one for me. It's all about Prince. I've been a fan since I was 12. Quick story, I've danced on stage with him at a sold-out concert in Toronto at the Air Canada Centre, on stage with him with 50,000, 40,000, whatever it was, Twenty felt like 50,000 people, I don't know, but it was sold out, and I was on stage with him, literally standing next to me, dancing away in his high-heeled boots and all that, and it was the most electrifying experience I've ever had. That much energy just coming toward you is something everyone should experience. Woo! How in the world, just hold on a second. How in the world did you get up on stage with Prince in front of 50,000 people and rock out? How did that happen? I, I was, I was, I don't know why I just got determined. I said, I'm going to, because I knew what the show was going to be. Like I knew that they bring people up on stage at a certain point of the show because I'd seen the show two days prior in Detroit. And then I went to Toronto to see it again. And I, huge fan. No, I follow him around. It's crazy. And I just knew, I was like, who do I have to talk to? So I talked to the stage manager. I talked to that person. That person sent me to that person. I talked to them. I told them and I just networked and made my way around until I got the yes. Wow. Awesome. Another story 
for another day, just another story about how you took the offense, you played offense, and second or third grade Cheryl would have done that because she was terrified of public stuff. And now, (laughs) why not me? Why not me? I love it. Why not me? Got you on stage with Prince. Super cool. Last question, Cheryl. We are on the Eternal Optimist podcast. And if I ask you, what does Eternal Optimist mean to you? What would you say? That the universe is conspiring in your favor. As long as you believe that and that you go with that. So the, the world is, it's a, inherently a good place. Not everyone is on a good path, right? We know that there are definitely things in the world that are terrible. And, but if you focus on that, then that's what you're going to see. I've started to limit the amount of news that I ingest. I don't watch movies with horror or gory images and things that I can't unsee. I'm really mindful of the things that I expose myself to, people that I expose, who I surround myself with. The eternal optimist in me says to share, you have control over your own actions and how you see the world, but also who you surround yourself with. But the universe wants you to do well. God wants you to do well. And it's in you to do that. But you have to be willing to follow that course of seeing the the good in people and seeing the good in yourself as well and taking the right step and making sure that your behaviors are aligned to that. Fantastic. Exceptional answer. Thank you, Cheryl Pluff, for being on the show today. It's been a real honor and pleasure. Thank you, Matt. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it.